If you uh, were here last week, um, you remember that we are starting a new series uh, around this idea of God's design. Um, I said last week this is a bit of my uh, legacy series of sermons, of things that I, if I could leave things with you, uh, what would it be? And trying to connect the dot between the theological and these great big concepts that are so good, but to connect the dots between Sunday morning, a doctrine and theology, and connect that to a Tuesday afternoon when your toddler is being obstinate, or a Wednesday morning when your coworker and you are just having issue, or a Thursday when you get in an argument with your spouse. So trying to take some theological concepts and principles and show how they drastically and radically invade the very practical and mundane aspects of our life. As that's kind of where we're going uh, in this series. Uh, we plan on a, I plan on addressing things like marriage, parenting, uh, sexuality. That's a big one. Uh, gender, government, all these hot button issues. And I made the joke uh, last week and as you were talking about your missions trips, uh, when I got to go on a Word of Life missions trip, we were in El Salvador and our tour guide, it happened to be his last week, and his mantra was, what are they going to do, fire me? So we did all sorts of fun stuff. So I said, hey, let's just poke every little issue we can and show how the gospel radically informs that and addresses that. Um, so we're going to do it in three parts. Uh, this is just a quick overview. We're going to do mankind as created, and today we're going to talk about that. What does it mean for us to be created beings? What are the implications of having a creator and being created? Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to start addressing mankind as communal. Uh, What does it mean for us to have relationships, whether marital or parental, friendships, church membership, all of that? Uh, And thirdly, mankind as consummated, just implications of being a Christian in 2018. How do we respond to culture? How do we respond to government? And how do we respond to the world? And, And my prayer in this whole series is that it would we would stop making life up as we go, that we would stop just making this thing up, whether how to be married, how to be parent, uh, and addressing issues like gender, sexuality, instead of getting our information from the world, getting our information from God and from his word. That's kind of the intention here, to connect these dots. So as I said, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at and beginning this section on mankind as created And throughout this series, we're going to be using the Genesis chapter 1 and 2 text as our controlling text, and yet we're going to go all over the scriptures as we explore some of these uh, big principles. And again, a little caveat that we're not going to have a lecture in young earth creationism versus old earth theory, but rather an examination of the central claim of Christianity regarding the origin of us. All right, so as we go into this subject of mankind as created, we want to get beneath the surface a bit, a bit beneath the text, and ask, what does it mean for me to be a created being? Isn't that a fantastic question? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does it mean for me to be designed? What does it mean for me to be created? What does it mean for you and I on this dark, gloomy April to be created beings, and what does it mean for us to have a creator. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I want to read the whole chapter because I want to get a, a flow for what's happening here. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1, let me read this. Thus, 
The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Eric, we should move there. There's gold in Havilah. Havilah. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And all the men said, Amen. That's not really in there. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's a lot there that came out, but did you catch the the phrasing of verse 7 and verse 22? Uh, Let's look at verse 7. In regards to creating of the man, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of 
of life, and the man became a living creature. Right at our outset, we are created beings. I love that the scripture says that God formed and the man became. There's this idea of forming and crafting. And the same happens in verse 22. Speaking of Eve. This is in the rib that the Lord God had taken from man. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. That thought has created beings that our forebearers were formed or becoming and were crafted into and made. Uh, there's a guy named Francis Collins. If you have any uh, time this week, you should research this guy, Francis Collins. Uh, he was one of the administrators on the uh, Human Genome Project in the mid to late 90s. And he became a, he's a Christian, lover of Jesus, and a brilliant man who studies DNA. And he wrote this book called The Language of God, and it's fantastic. But in there, he said this, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. Catch this. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. Let me reread that. Listen to this again. Did you, did you catch that? His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. Genesis 1, 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I, according to Scripture, according to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and according to this thinking of this Francis Collins, and rightly so, have been created as majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful beings. There's a thought. That we have been created as majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us about God even? This morning, I want to look to answer those questions uh, in the text of Psalm 139. Would you turn there with me? Psalm 139. And as we read the text, I, I'm praying that we would engage our mind with these two questions. Number one, what is Psalm 139 going to tell us about God? What is Psalm 139 going to reveal to us about the character and nature of our Creator God? Question number one, what does this tell me about God? And question number two, what does this tell me about me? As we read Psalm 139, what does this tell me about God, my creator, and what does it tell me about me as his created? So Psalm 139. And we're going to look at verses, just the first half, verses 1 through 16. We read this. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in 
behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Amen, praise God. What a text Psalm 139 is. And so for our first question, what does Psalm 139 verses 1 through 16 tell us about God? What do we glean from these several, these 16 verses about Creator God? And and there's three of them that I see here. And these, for some of us, may be very common phrases and things we may know. Here's what they are. Number one, in verses one through six, it tells us this, that God is omniscient. We're going to explain that. That He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Second, in verses 7 through 12, we're going to see this, that God is omnipresent. He is always present. Past, present, future, he's there. That's a head trip. That's a fun one. And then number three, verses 13 through 16, that he is omnipotent. That he is all-powerful creator God. And now let's, let's break that down. So verses 1 through 6, this idea of omniscience, it, it means this, that you have this prefix of omni, which means all or totality, without limits. And the suffix, sient, meaning to know or knowing, and together it means God is all-knowing. Limitless knowledge, total understanding. God is the omniscient one. He knows all things. Now, I had this great privilege of going and seeing the Avengers Infinity War the other night. Thank you, Mike. Pre-premiere, 3D, go T-Rex Theater. Anyone see Infinity War yet? Scots are going to go. Yet? What'd you think? What'd you think? Best Marvel movie ever, right? All right, so there's this part, I'm no spoilers, there's this part in Infinity War where Doctor Strange, I know you're looking at me like, what, what are you, hold on. There's this guy named Doctor Strange, all right? And Dr. Strange, he falls into this meditative state, and, and he's examining all the possible outcomes of a certain situation. Dr. Strange is kind of a wizard. And he's, he's imagining all the possible outcomes of this problem that the superheroes are facing, and, and he discerns the correct path forward. He comes out, he, has, he understands there's, there's one way that this will work for us. And as the movie unfolded, no joke, People were bawling all around us, right? People were like, 
I had this girl in front of me, like I wanted to just give her a hug. She was sobbing and bawling at some of the outcomes of the movie. And I, yet I sat there fine because I knew that Dr. Strange knew what was going to happen and knew the correct path forward. I sat comfortably because Dr. Strange knew. How's that for application, Mike? And clearly from Psalm 139 text, God knows. God knows, but the Psalm 139 text ups the ante a bit because unlike Dr. Strange just simply observing the future, kind of passively looking at events unfold, the God of the Bible is the active creator and sustainer of all things past, present, future. That's why he knows them. It's an active knowledge, past, present, future, because he designed it, he sustained it. And Psalm 139 presents God as being intimately acquainted with every detail of our lives, for he is the designer of our lives. He actively knows. Arthur Pink, a a theologian and writer from a century or so ago, writes this of God's omniscience. He says, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future, he is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. His knowledge is perfect. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. That's your God, friends. Perfect, active, present knowledge. Now let's see how this shakes out in Psalm 139. Starting in verse 1, we read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. I love this idea of searching. It means to, to probe, to spy, and to know means deep, intimate knowledge. Friends, God knows you. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Every mundane detail of our lives is known by Him. Think about that. Not only the big things, the big bad things or the big good things, but even your little breathing and your little tiny lungs and the blinkings of your eye and the little mundane activities you go through every single day, God knows it. And I love the second half of this verse where it says, you discern my thoughts from afar. The Travis Moses version of that is, he knows your thoughts before you think of thinking them. Let that hit you. That's knowing. That's knowing. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. The Holman Christian Standard Version of the Scriptures will put, instead of search, it says you you observe, you craft my path. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There it is. Before you even think of speaking something, he knows it. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. There it is again, intimately involved in not only the design of the path, but also in getting us along the path. Isn't that a crazy thought? 
long as he know the thought, the path, design the path, he grabs us by the hand and walks us down that path. I love that, verse 5. In verse 6, David, much like Job, if you remember in Job chapter 42, the end of Job, he has the same response that David does here. In, in seeing this reaction of this knowing God, this big God, I love David's response in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David's like, I'm dumb, bro. I, I can't even begin to comprehend that. That is incredible. The thought being that to the lowliest pebble beneath your feet, to the growth of a child within your womb, that every bud and every heartbeat, every drop of rain and every roar of the lion upon the African plain is known by him. What a thought. Now the second one, there's, so there's God's omniscience. Now how about God's omnipresence? So if God is all-knowing, actively knowing, past, present, future, designing, sustaining, there he is as the ultimate knower Psalm 139 goes on and presents him as the omnipresent one. Wayne Grudem wrote a fa- many theological works, but wrote a fantastic book called Systematic Theology. It's just a tome like this thick. It's really great if you've got a draft in your door. Stick it right there. It's huge. But he describes omnipresence this way. It is the doctrine that God does not have size, you ready for this, Mr. C? Here we go. That God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Wow. James Boyce ups the ante a bit. He says this, that his omnipresence, by this word we express the relation of God as present with creation. He is present everywhere. He is present at one and the same time everywhere. His presence is not merely contact, but energy and power. The whole infinite deity is entirely, undividedly present at each point of creation and in each moment of time. There's our God, friends. That's a big God. That's a big God, a big present God. And we see this at Psalm 139, verse 7. And David kind of playing a little rhetorical question here in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? David kind of gets a view in verse 1 through 6 of how big God is. And in verse 7, he's like, all right, where can I go from you? The all-knowing one, omniscient one. In verse 8, the answer is pretty simple, at nowhere. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And these phrases are so beautiful and so immense heaven it just means space galaxies planets universes it's as if david says if i ascend to the farthest reaches of the universe god is there if i go to the highest height the highest i possibly can go god is there and then he flips it because even if i go to sheol even if i go to the uttermost depths of the earth If heaven equals infinite height, then Sheol equals infinite depths. And it says, God, you're there. You're present. 
Verse 9, he says the same thing. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. There's a bit of poetry here. This idea of wings of morning mean the furthest reaches of where the sun rises in the east. If I go to where the sun rises, if I go farthest to the east as I possibly can go, in the uttermost parts of the sea just means the, the, the western reaches of the Mediterranean, western reaches of the known world. If I go as far west as I could possibly go, God, you are there. It is impossible to flee his presence. I love that. And verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall protect me. Even in the far places, he will lead us by his hand and protect and comfort. I love that picture of the right hand, meaning power and protection and care. Verse 11 and verse 12, it hit me. I'm scared of the dark. I don't know if you knew that or not, but if the lights are on, so I'll pull up into the parsonage, and if it's late at night coming home after Bible study or something, I'll park the car, and I literally will run to the front door. No joke. <laughs> I hate the dark. Uh, when I was a kid, my, uh, my sister one time, I was out at work. I was working late, and I come home, I was like 16, 17, came home from work, and I didn't realize my sister had been playing in my bedroom, and she had a life-size baby doll that she had to play with, but she set it up in my bed, and I will never, I will never forget. I, I walked into my room, I flick on the light, and there's a baby. I, it was bad. It was messy. I hate the dark. Verse, that's the whole point there. Travis hates the dark. Eric, write that down, just so you know. So verse 11 and verse 12, though, I love this. David says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's no amount of darkness can hide you. He's present. Now the third thought. This idea of omnipotence, of all-powerful God. We, we see him as all-knowing, as all-present. And now Psalm 139 presents God as all-powerful. My good friend Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, God's power is like himself. It is self-existent, self-sustained, the mightiest of men. cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttressed throne or leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. That's a big God. I love that view. And Psalm 139 brings to light the ultimate expression of the power of God to create life. I, notice I didn't say the ultimate expression of God's power is to create. Creating something's easy. I can go home with an erector set or Legos and I can build something. You guys can build airplanes. You can't make an airplane alive. But God makes life. We see this in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jump down to verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of 
the earth. I love that idea of forming, to, to construct, and it carries with it this idea of to construct with intention to own. It means you craft something, make something for your own. It's yours. You make it for yourself. And knit just means to weave with careful attention. And here's the thought, that the creation of life through the fertilization of the egg by the sperm is a profound act of God that men and women may have the parts to do so, but God makes it work. That God creates the life. In verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It means I'm made with awesome things. I'm made with precision, with careful precision. Wonderfully just simply means to be set apart, to be made distinct, that God has created and crafted mankind, implying that we are distinct and set apart from the entirety of the created order with this, that humanity is special. You are special. The world might not think so. We have a hierarchy of, well, that person's special because they date Kim Kardashian, so they must be special. I think so too, but a different definition. We have hierarchies. In God's economy, that's not there. You're special. No matter how short, how fat, how tall, how stinky, how hairy, how not hairy, you're special. That's what Psalm 139 says. Human life is special. In verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, God knew you before there was you. There's a thought. God knew you before there was you. He knows every day you will experience, and here's why. He's, again, he's not like Dr. Strange, just simply seeing a plan into the future. He knows every day you will experience because he formed them for you specifically. You see that in the text. So we know from Psalm 139 that God is, we know he's omniscient, we know he's omnipotent, and we know he's omnipresent. That's great. There's big, deep theological truth there. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to have a God who's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you sitting in the pew this morning to have a God that, that, that big and that powerful? What are the implications of having a creator like God? I, I see three of them from the text. And this isn't exhaustive. There's many more probably in here. I see three of them. Number one, in dealing with God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6, that you are known. The second thing I see in verses 7 through 12 is this, you are not alone. In verses 13 through 16, I see this, that you have a purpose. And now to be known, to not be alone, and to have purpose, if you were to distill down the entirety of all human pursuit, it would boil down to those three things. Right? I think every one of us wants to be known. We want to know that we matter. We want to know that we're cared for. Even, even if you're the most introverted person, deep down you want someone to at least care and know that you exist. We don't want to be alone and we want to have purpose. Are these not the things we strive for? 
Now to this thought from the text that we are known, given God's omniscience. Uh, Scott Williams, he's a Christian blogger that I follow, he writes this. In regards to being known, he says, whether we want to admit it or not, every one of us has this innate desire to want to be known. We all want someone to know us, acknowledge us, and realize that we exist. Even the most introverted of introverts wants to be known by someone. That someone can be a spouse, a boss, a friend, large groups of people, online friends, peers, neighbors, etc. We all are like toddlers saying, hey, can't you see me? I'm here. There's probably nothing more heart-wrenching as a parent than this cute moment when your child comes to you and says, daddy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Look, look what I've made. Look what I've crafted. Acknowledge me. I'm here. Look at me. And are we any different? As adults, are we any different? We long to be known. We bring that to our marriages, to our friendships, to our workplaces. We bring it saying, just look at me. Acknowledge me. Look what I've made. Whether it's a little statue of Legos made by a four-year-old or an an airplane made by Eric. We say, look at me. Look at me. Acknowledge me. Isn't this what drives our accumulation for stuff? Isn't this what drives the love of Instagram posts and filters and meaningless sexual encounters and and children saying, look at me, are you watching? It's so innate to us. In Psalm 139, verse 3, it says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Psalm 139, verse 3, in that God says, I know you better than you know yourself. I know the depth of wickedness within your heart. I know every ounce of shame. I know every bit of regret you carry with you. I know every bit of you, and I love you because I've designed you. I've made you. I know you. Friends, you're known. You're known. And to the second thought, the desire to not be alone. Uh, I'll get a, a little personal with this. When Kirsten and I began, began dating, I, I had this immense fear that she was going to leave me. Not because of her, but because of me. I, I, I grew up in a family, and all of my uncles and aunts, there's not a single marriage that is intact. But my dad had eight brothers, my mom had nine brothers and sisters. Not a single marriage left intact. Everyone left. Everyone cheated. My experience was you just, you get left. And in my family, promises were broken constantly and you were constantly left feeling alone and abandoned. And then I read Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12. In David's whole thing, where shall I go from your presence? Are you going to leave me? Here's what I hear when I read verse 7 through 12. Travis, you're not alone. Mike, you're not alone. Albert, you're not alone. There's no amount of shame that will separate us. You're mine. I have designed you. I have crafted your life life precisely according to my plan, and I am faithful, and I'm not going to leave you. Psalm 139 says, Better sell, you can't even leave me. I love you too much to let you go. 
Love verse 7 through 12. And then the last one, to have a purpose. There's implications for us that, that, that we are not alone, that we are known, and that the thirdly, that we have purpose. Why am I here? Ever asked that question? There's a big question. Why am I here? What good am I? What is the point? Does my life have any meaning? Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The days of our lives, not the soap opera, but the days of our lives, the days of your life, have been formed for you. Notice it doesn't say, not you for the days. It doesn't say, you were made for this. No, these days were made for you. Your days have been crafted specifically for you. Your life has been crafted specifically for you with every little moment designed. And so here's what that means. That every diaper change and every vacation, every car repair, and every raise, every job loss, and every job gained, all of it designed and sustained by him for you. It's an immense thought. Shouting but one thing, that your life has purpose and meaning, and friends, and I've said this here before, and I'll say it again, just write this thought down, that there are no accidents in the economy of God. You are not an accident. The things that happen to you are not accidental. They're designed and they're good for you. There are no accidents in the economy of God. Both in the big things and in your life, Ron, you're not an accident. What a thought. What a thought that is. And Because God is the creator, because God is the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, we are are, are you ready for this? We are known, we are not alone, and we are instilled with purpose. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the truth of your word, that it reveals you to us in your fullness, in your bigness, in your transcendence, that you are the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, the present one, and yet it connects the dots and shows us that because you are all those things, that we are known, we are valued, that we have purpose because of you. We praise your great name. We praise you that in Jesus we can be your children, are made your children. Father, we love you. It's in the mighty, awesome name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.